Hi everyone. This is a very special episode of Parenting Reimagined. I am talking with Penny Simpkin. Penny is a physical therapist by training, but she has spent her entire 45-year career dedicated to enhancing childbirth education and supporting women who are in labor. She estimates that over the course of her career, she has worked with over 12,000 families to provide educational support, and she has attended the birth of hundreds of women in her capacity as a doula. In addition to being an educator and a doula, Penny is the author of numerous books and articles, including a book that has been passed around my circle of friends called The Birth Partner, which helps husbands, mothers, anyone who will be present during the birth process to know what to expect and how to be helpful. It was really an honor for me to talk with someone who has helped to so broadly transform the way that people become parents. Penny's writing and her educational work have helped bring empowerment, kindness, and respectful treatment to women who are birthing around our country and around the world. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Penny, and thanks so much for listening to Parenting Reimagined. This is Parenting Reimagined, a place where the conversation goes beyond what we do as parents, and we take the time to consider what parenting teaches us, how it transforms us, and what being parents means for the landscape of our inner lives. I am Sherry Walling. Well, my name is Penny Simkin. I am a physical therapist by training and uh, have focused completely on childbirth work for the past 45 years. Uh, I am married to the father of my four children. We've been married for 54 years. And we have four grown children and eight grandchildren and two grandchildren-in-laws. No great-grandchildren yet. And we also have a little dog named Hugo. And you have been working as a birth educator and doula for for many years. And I think I read on your website that you have supported somewhere around 11,000 mothers and partners and siblings through the process of birth. Yes, yes. Uh, I've been with, I would put it in the hundreds uh, in terms of labor support. I think um, I, I think I'm probably at 12,000 by now because I, I work with about 250 families a year. Wow. Would you talk a bit about why you believe that birth preparation is so important? Well, yes, I'd be happy to. It's always been important. Uh, that, that women know something about what's coming up when they're pregnant and things like that. And, you know, for generations, women learned that from uh, other women, uh, people in their families who would attend them during birth. And um, it was kind of a woman's, woman-to-woman kind of education. And I think as birth became more industrialized and moved into the hospital, and then women were separated from their support systems. We got to a point where um, there was really no one who uh, knew very much. I mean, uh, my mother, for example, was unconscious for the birth of all six of us, and she couldn't tell me very much about birth. I think a generation or two of women were completely isolated from birth with medications. I mean, not everybody, of course, but 
it certainly became the, the the norm not participate at all in the birth. I think women were very ignorant. The only people they could learn from were their doctors, who some of whom were very kind and and uh, would would educate, but many of whom just said, you know, I can take care of this. You just you know stay looking pretty and <laughs> don't worry. About the 1950s or so, that was when the, the childbirth education movement kind of had its its beginnings. Grantly Dick Reed, who was a famous British obstetrician, and he wrote a book called Childbirth Without Fear. He toured the United States and left pockets of interest in natural childbirth. In Seattle, where I'm from, was one of them. He trained some people to, to teach childbirth classes, and I was actually trained by one of the people that he trained when I became an educator. But women have been ignorant about what happened and worried and fearful. Pain was seen as being something that was a sign of danger. And then uh, the, the only experts were the doctors. We had no midwives practicing in the United States to speak of until the 1970s. So I think what happened was that women were almost victimized by their own ignorance is because they didn't know to ask for things and didn't know to assert themselves. They were at a disadvantage. So fear of birth became the norm, and then the educators came along and tried to replace fear with knowledge, helping women master uh, ways to relax and to accept, accept and work with the pain rather than fear it. The mid-60s, late-60s, uh, well into the 80s, for about 20 years, uh, childbirth education had its heyday. I think the uh, educators were independent. They weren't told what to say by physicians or hospitals, and they were educated independently. So the, the woman had a, a voice that, you know, she was hearing a voice that was really focusing on her. And, and a lot of women responded beautifully. They wanted natural birth. They worked at it. They prepared themselves. And then, of course, they wanted their partners to be there, uh, their husbands or the fathers of their babies or their loved ones, and uh, so the, the, the partner became a fixture at birth. You know, that was one of the big changes, I think, that took place, as did natural birth. But then it's, we, we've slid downhill again. I think that we had a small home birth movement, and that really worried hospitals to see intelligent, in, insured women, <laughs> women with money, who were choosing not to give birth in their hospitals, and they began to wonder, what's the matter with them? And began to realize it was what was the matter with the hospitals. And I think, you know, in the 80s, the hospitals started responding with um, the birthing rooms, and, uh, and they started offering childbirth classes. And it kind of took the independent element out of education again. And, and then the epidural, of course, became very well-developed. So women thought, well, I can go to the, the hospital, get my classes, and they won't charge me anything, as those private educators do, and uh, I can have my epidural, and everything will be fine. And so we've been uh, seeing people turning their backs on education again, partly because of the epidural and partly because women are working very hard these days and very tired at the end of the day um, and not really interested in sitting through two hours of class every week. So I think there have been a lot of factors that have kind of worked against childbirth education, although we still have a, a, a small minority of women who do take childbirth classes and um, really want to participate in the birth, etc. So it, it's been quite an up-and-down roller coaster 
I think, for women over my career, which has lasted about 45 years. Hmm. One of the things that I've so appreciated about your work, I mean, I know a lot of your work happens through direct education with people in a room, but I think your your writing has also had quite a reach, and I... I um, remember watching my husband reading the birth partner book oh. before we had our children mm-hmm. and what a what a shift that book was in not only empowering mothers who are giving birth but empowering you know their their husbands or partners or other people around them that that seems like that's also been a really significant contribution that that you have made well and thank you for that i i was um interested in having a book for fathers, partners, and loved ones, and really thought that a man should write it. Then I had some grandchildren, and I was I have attended the birth of all eight of my grandchildren, and in doing that, I began to appreciate, to an extent, what the father goes through, or the, the loved one, because we have female parents, etc., that are involved as deeply. I discovered, you know, when you really love that woman who is giving birth and the child who is the product of that, it's very hard to be as level-headed and calm as I could as a doula. You know, when I was a doula for people that I didn't know very well, you know, I was emotional, but not in a way that was tied in with, you know, kind of a desperate feeling for the mother. And then when my own daughters were giving birth and my daughter-in-law, I began to feel what it's like to be the partner and uh, so I decided this book is not coming out, you know, so I'm going to write it. And uh, felt that that experience with my first few grandchildren was invaluable in helping me appreciate the role of the partner. And, and hmm. I'm a little kinder now, you know, uh, to partners. I think, um, you know, we say, learn this, learn this, learn this, memorize this book, ask these questions. And uh, now I'm beginning to realize when there's a lot at stake, it's, it's too much to ask a partner to stay calm if he's worried about the woman he loves yeah. and the baby. There's a lot of emotion that, that's present in the process. Yeah, right, right. So that's actually why doulas are here now because that's... Yes, <laughs> thankfully. Yeah. Just for any listeners who might not know, would you say a little bit about what a doula is? Yeah. It, it has come to mean uh, a person, usually a woman... Uh, who is trained and experienced in childbirth, who provides continuous, and the word continuous is terribly important here, emotional and physical support throughout labor. And she also uh, helps uh, the, the woman and partner to get information that they need to make good decisions. Usually the doula becomes acquainted with the, the, the couple ahead of time, gets to know their wishes and their uh, fears and concerns, and then is with them throughout the labor, and usually visits uh, a few times after the birth as well, maybe two times. The birth doula is distinguished from a postpartum doula who is trained to work with new families in their homes and helping them master the arts of baby care and breastfeeding and that sort of thing. So in addition to your role as an educator and an author, you are still working as a doula? Well, yeah, it has uh, really been reduced. I'm committed to it. I, I'm getting old, and uh, so I'm, I've cut down on the number of births I'm doing as a doula, but I'm still training doulas and working with women and doulas together, you know, when there are some problems for the mother. 
I like to work with the woman and her doula, you know, to uh, make sure everything's going to be okay. Shall I tell you how I got interested in, in being a doula? Sure, was, I would love to hear that story. This, this was actually pivotal in my life. Uh, when I turned 50 in the 80s, I began to think, why am I doing childbirth work? I should be teaching menopause or something like that. And um, But I, I thought, um, and also there was quite a shift in childbirth education, more toward family education than childbirth. And I didn't feel quite comfortable with that, so I was considering leaving the field. But I decided before I, I did that, I, I wanted to contact some of the women I had had in my childbirth classes years before, because I'd been teaching 20 years already at that time. And so I... To make a very long story short, I had the birth stories they had written right after their babies were born. I've never thrown one of those away. And then, uh, so I, I was able to locate 24 women from 15 to 20 years previous and uh, ask them to write the story of their birth as they remember it today, you know, or that day at that time, and ask them to rate their satisfaction and other things. And then I compared the two stories and found that the women did not forget. They, you know, for 15 or 20 years since they gave birth, they had vivid, clear memories. And they didn't have copy machines at that time to refer to, you know, as to copies of their births to refer to. So then I had them come in for an interview, which I taped and transcribed, and then I put it through. I, I learned how to do content analysis and some of this wonderful uh, psychological research. And, mm-hmm. um, I, but, but in the course of all that, I, I published two papers. But what I learned is that women remember. They, they're going to remember for as long as they live. And the memories were not just my bag broke at 8 o'clock and I had the baby at 4 in the afternoon or anything like that. It was the memories they had were so emotional and poignant. And many of the women cried as they were recalling the birth in our interview. They were so moved. Some were crying out of anger and anguish and remorse, and others were crying uh, out of joy. And so I realized that that day in a woman's life that she gives birth is going to be with her forever. Some women will remember it as the best thing that ever happened to them or, you know, very, very positively, and others will never get over it. And, you know, to feel regret or disappointment all that time. And so I... I, um, I decided how we care for women, because that's what I found in the study, was how they remember being cared for that really mattered. It wasn't whether it was an easy birth or a hard birth. It was if the nurses and doctors were kind to them. From that, I thought, you know, we can't control how long labor is going to be or how hard it's going to be. We can do a little bit on that, but we can always control how we care for her. We can always be kind no matter what. And I wasn't seeing that. I wasn't Mm -hmm. seeing kindness. I was seeing a lot of disrespect, and, um, and and many of the women told me of awful things that were said to them and done to them. Others got very good care. But I thought, how can we ensure that every woman is well cared for and not left when the shift ends and things like that? I heard a little bit about doulas from uh, the work of Marshall Klaus and John Kennel. They had done some work in Guatemala. But well, maybe that's what we need. Because I had been going with women ever since I started teaching. And I just made up a course and started teaching, and and then we joined John Kennel and Marshall Klaus and Phyllis Klaus and Annie Kennedy, and I decided to make this an organization, Doula Doulas of North America. It was then, and um, now you know there are lots of doula organizations, and 
There are lots of, in, in Donna itself, we have about 155 trainers. We have trainers in many different countries. It's just a, it's an idea that is so appealing to women. And, it, and you know, the research certainly has shown that when women have a doula with them, they have shorter labors, they have many fewer cesareans of women that, that don't have doulas. And uh, they request medication less often. So um, I think that what I learned in my study was that the emotional side of labor was being neglected and that we needed to do something about that. And uh, interestingly, we found that when a woman's emotional needs are taken care of, the physical outcomes are better as well. Yeah. I'm curious what lessons you've learned by being part of the birth process. I, I'm sure there are many, but I, I wonder if there are some that have just really impacted the way that you live your life or view your life because of being so integrated into to birth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, um, I, I guess probably the most, the best lesson I got, I've gotten from this work is that the work of being a doula is very pure. You can't go in, uh, you know, thinking about yourself. Um, even the problems that you have in your life, you have to set those aside. And the, the purity of the role is that you, you're there for her. And your own needs don't matter. And, um, in fact, my, my little description of what I do, <laughs> I, I say I give her everything I've got for as long as it takes is the way I define my role. Hmm. But and and there's something very um, cleansing about that, and to have to put aside my my own needs uh, for somebody else, I I feel has been very very good for me. You know, in other words, serving somebody else has probably been as beneficial to me as it has to them. Uh, and I, I I like that. I have to kind of go through a little ritual before birth. You know, the deadlines that I'm worrying about and all the things that aren't done, I have to clear those out so that I can give myself over to her completely. You know, one of the things that, just in my own experience and in talking with my friends who are in this stage of birthing and and raising young children is um, kind of this observation that sometimes the way that birth goes really sets the stage for parenting. I've seen my friends give birth in lots of different ways, um, some at home, some, you know, with more medicalized births, and some who want a lot of information and some who don't want any information. And in, in some ways, the way that they have approached birth seems to also mirror the way that they have approached par- parenting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I wonder if you have found that to be true? Yeah, I would, I would agree with you on that. Definitely, and uh, and you know it's kind of interesting because birth, birth, you know, even though it's a big part of the healthcare system, it's it's not a sickness. So women have lots of choices. I mean, if you have cancer, you don't really have lots of choices. You tend to pick the expert and say, "Do the best you can for me." Or if you break your leg, you you do. You, you don't say, "Well, now explain the differences between these different surgeries that you're planning." You know, but with with uh, childbirth, there are so many legitimate choices. I mean, home birth is safe in in places where there's good backup. 
and uh, and hospital births are very safe, uh, but there's a lot more intervention used. And so I think you're right that people pick the the mode of birth that is consistent with their values, and of course those values are going to be guiding them in parenting as well. The the place where there is a problem. I think it's when women have strong feelings about how they'd like to give birth and it doesn't go that way. And mm. uh, sometimes it's, it's because a problem arose. I have two of my clients, my home birth students in, in the hospital right now, one with a placenta previa and another with some excess amniotic fluid. And they're grieving because the babies, the babies will be born in the hospital. And they, they, they had, had such clear uh, wishes and hopes, and and now they're having to give those up, and they they don't know if they have any choices now because of the situation. They're going through some real anguish. They're worried about their babies. They adore their babies, but they're not going to have their babies. They may not have their babies skin to skin, for example, afterwards, and they're wondering if that could be damaging to the baby. You know, and we've had to talk about you know the the rock in a hard place that they're they're in right mm-hmm. now. And sometimes when birth goes um, really very, very differently from the way parents had expected, uh, there's an awful lot of coming to terms. It's grieving. And uh, so that, you know, because the birth doesn't reflect their values, you see, um, then there's a lot of work that has to be done. And it can be done, and it does get done. And I really admire people who do have to make adjustments and and then come to some sense of resolution, even though it is not what they had wanted. But I spend a lot of my time uh, working with people that are having to come to terms with unexpected difficulties or disappointments. Hmm. I guess that's a you know another way in which I have seen the parallel between the larger parenting process and birth is the the way in which you're relinquishing some control. You know, there are, you know, there are choices you can make and there are plans you can make, but ultimately you don't have full control over birth and you don't have full control over your children. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's, it's awfully hard. It's a hard lesson to learn. Uh, it's very uncomfortable. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes, again, you go to the park or you go somewhere and there's this little unruly child and you start thinking, she, that parent ought to do this, this, and this, you know. And we can become very judgmental. And But when you become that parent and you've got an unruly child on the playground, <laughs> then you start to think, uh, gosh, I don't have any control over this or I don't have very much. Um, and so I think we, I think as parents, it's a, hu- it's a humbling experience as well as one of the most rewarding experiences we've ever gone through. Yeah. Did you have your own pregnancy or birth experiences that influenced your your decision to go into this field? Well, you know, that's what's so ironic. Uh, that is not why I went into the field. I, I have four children, and I gave birth to all four of them before I'd even heard of childbirth education. There wasn't any. Remember, this was in the early 1960s, and... Um, there were a few classes here and there, but uh, there weren't any where I was giving birth. And I wouldn't have—I would have thought, well, women have been doing this for centuries. Why can't I? Um, my my first birth, I, my doctor uh, did tell me that I was an excellent candidate for natural childbirth, uh, which is kind of unusual, especially at that time. And I said, okay, I'll do it, because I was strong and healthy. 
but I, I wasn't able to have a natural birth. My son weighed 10 pounds and 4 ounces, and he was way overdue, and I wound up with a forceps delivery under general anesthetic. I think that something that happened after that probably, at the time I didn't realize it, but I think it's played an awful big role in my development as a person and in the childbirth field, but I was very, I felt terrible that I had not done what my doctor had wanted me to do, you know, have that natural birth. Hmm. And um, I felt guilty and ashamed and um, thought it was my fault. And um, and I, uh, I was kind of kicking myself. And I remember uh, that he came around. We stayed in the hospital for five days in those days. And so one of those days he came by to see how I was doing. The thing that he did that... Um, to me, I call I, I have this story, and I call it three little words because I think this probably did set the stage for me in some ways. But I was, you know, as I say, disappointed and ashamed, and I couldn't even look him in the eye. Um, and uh, it sounds stupid now, but I was very young and um, very vulnerable. Anyway, he, um, I, I remember, he looked at me, and it was North Carolina, no. No air conditioning, August. <laughs> Hot as Whoa. anything in there. But I had a sheet pulled up over me, and he uh, he grabbed my ankle through the sheet, you know, gave it a little shake and looked at me and said, what a trooper. And I think that kind of told me, oh, maybe I'm not so horrible. All he said was, what a trooper. I, I feel that if he had said, oh, the lady across the hall, she had an 11-pound baby all by herself, you know, something like that, I would have felt like two cents, and I don't think I would have been able to get into this field. But it did allow me to listen to the part of me that thought I had worked hard, you know. And uh, I'm very grateful that he he said that. He has no idea, of course. He's dead, He's dead now, but I'm sure he had never any idea how that was such a relief to me. And then I did go on and have some natural births after that. And this is something I've learned and um, I use in my teaching and in my doula work. Women are extremely vulnerable to suggestion during labor, uh, you know, in, in, in pregnancy, but mostly during labor. The things that are said, they will remember forever. And if someone says something kind and respectful or admiring, that sticks. But if they say, you're too loud, you're breathing too fast, you, you know, you'll never get your baby out that way. That sort of thing, that will stick with them forever, too. We, in the caring side of it, have it in our power to hurt her in a way that will last for a long, long time or enhance her self-esteem and give her more confidence as a parent because if she feels she did a good job, even if it was a very difficult labor, she knows she can do difficult things. And parenting is certainly difficult at times. I'm very grateful that that, that doctor said that to me. <laughs> I think it, it it does speak to the way in which, especially in birth, but to an extent also in parenting, I think we're also very afraid that we're doing it wrong, mm-hmm. that um, those kind words of affirmation can be so powerful, especially when they're well-timed. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. And when, when somebody, when you're feeling a little frazzled or doing the best you can, and somebody says, my, look at those beautiful children, you're doing such a good job like a burden being lifted. <laughs> so, you know, all the old folks ought to be very aware of that because it is it's hard work and people are often tired and worried about whether they're doing the job they ought to be doing and all the people around could empower them a little bit. 
Would you say a little bit about birth preparation for siblings? I teach a class once a month. I have a new video called There's a Baby. It's 11 minutes and it's four children who are going to be, have, you know, who are going to be siblings. And it's based on this class that, I've, that I teach. I believe that children are like a blank slate in terms of birth values. They don't have the fear of childbirth that grown-ups do. They can be fascinated by it and not terrified by it. If they uh, have some education, know what to expect, and then have somebody there for them during the birth process, if that's what they choose to do, or if they're also if they have some knowledge about what they can do uh, afterwards with the baby to play with the baby and things. So, I, I feel this is a, a very precious uh, class. I've, I've been teaching this for 30 years, and I love it. It's very fast moving. As long as they can talk in sentences, they're eligible for the class. Mothers and fathers are there, and I ask them if they know where the baby is, and they all point to their mummy's tummies, and then I show them some pictures of the uterus with the baby inside, and then we talk about what the baby can do now in the uterus, and the, the kids all know, oh, they can kick, and they can do this, and some say, and they can eat, and they can whistle, and, you know, they have all their ideas, but so we talk about uh, pregnancy and what the baby can do, and I urge them, I tell them the baby can hear their voices, and to talk to the baby and to sing twinkle, twinkle, little star to the baby. I do go over the birth experience. I have a big doll who is pregnant, and she gives birth to a small doll. And I act that out, and I try to, you know, I make sure that everybody knows that it hurts, and mummies can breathe and help themselves. And we talk about food blood, the kind of blood that brings the food to the baby, but it comes out, and the baby doesn't need that anymore because mom's going to be feeding the baby. So I try to get concepts like that across in a wholesome way. And then we have a family that comes with a small baby and a big sister or a big brother. We have the big brother or sister show how you hold a baby the safe way. We have four rules of that. They do a diaper change, and the child shows how he or she helps during a diaper change. And then we all sing to the baby. And then I have, I'll be showing the film to wrap it up. I, I feel it's a very important little thing for children to learn. And I hope that will stick while they start hearing all the horrible things about birth that everybody wants to spread. Help them to interpret things in a more positive way. We were, we were talking a little bit earlier, and I wanted to maybe ask you just a little bit more about this. You have been one of the birth professionals that has really, for the larger community, connected some of the relationships between difficulty in birth and history of abuse or history of trauma. Mm -hmm. I guess I don't know exactly what to ask you, but just wonder if you want to say more about that or um, talk about the importance of making those connections before birth, if possible. Um, I began to uh, realize that it was uh, the births were more like sexual assaults to them than births, and and when I looked into it to find out if there was anything in the psychology or social science literature, there was nothing connecting the two. This was back in the mid-80s, and I asked my psychologist friends, and they, they said, no, you know, there's nothing. I actually joined forces with Phyllis Klaus, who is a psychotherapist, and the two of us wrote the book, uh, When Survivors Give Birth. Many, many women have been abused as children, sexually, physically, or with emotional neglect. I mean, it's true of boys, too. It's awful what we can do to our children in this country and in, in this culture, and it's, it's worldwide. It isn't just the United States. Often during a very formative time in the child's life, the child may form an opinion about him or herself 
as being unworthy or deserving of the abuse or um, uh, or get very, very angry at authority figures and uh, things. I mean, there are many ways that a history of abuse can affect the child. But it has it was kind of surprising to have it come up kind of unexpectedly uh, for women during the pregnancy year. We, we found that when sometimes when a baby is growing inside a woman, she, she may start to identify either with the child or find herself feeling uh, that the child is almost you know taking away her strength and things like that. She could feel somewhat victimized by being mm-hmm. pregnant. Or she might feel super protective of the baby, you know, not wanting the baby to suffer what she had suffered. Often feelings are very strong. And if the abuser was an authority figure, as many, many are, they have such power over the children, authority figures like doctors may be suspect. And then, of course, with sexual abuse, when the sexual parts of the body have been involved in the trauma, and those are the same parts that are going to be involved in giving birth, often the the woman becomes triggered and some of the memories of her past abuse may come up, you know, very emotionally for her. It can be a tough time, but the, the good news is that there can be so much healing of the abuse as well as other things during the birth process. I love working with abuse survivors because uh, the healing potential and the growth potential is so great we can often recognize how the abuse is playing it out, playing out uh, in her relationship with her doctor, perhaps, or in her feelings about being becoming a mother. You know, if her mother didn't protect her from the abuse, she may worry about being a mother. But uh, as she begins to recognize some of these issues and then um, understand, oh my golly, that was me as a child. I don't have to feel that way anymore. I'm an adult. I can separate those old feelings from present feelings, and I can come up with strategies for these things that are triggering me. And that's where it becomes very, very rewarding. And and many people uh, come out of birth, you know, maybe having had fear going in, and then they realize I overcame my fears. I I have this beautiful baby, and they they've made an awful lot of progress in healing from their abuse. And that's, you know, I, I want the world to know because the more awareness there is, the the more healing is available to the pregnant women. Amazing how it can be a corrective and healing experience mm-hmm. for a mom. Yeah. Well, I want to be uh, respectful of your time, um, but I, I wanted to ask maybe just one more question, and, and that is, um, given that I think many of my listeners are parents of young children, is there any is there any word of wisdom or encouragement that you would would like to give to that group of people? So many children are not advantaged. So many children in this world are not loved. They're being abused right now, you know. Uh, but but also uh, often they're in poverty. They don't have access to loving parents who are around. And and I think that each of us should love those children and be very careful about being judgmental about children who are growing up disadvantaged. Uh, try to be as as caring as possible and do nothing to make their lives worse. I, I guess mm. I, I do feel deeply for some of the children that I've been seeing you know, whose, whose parents just don't have the capacity to love them very much and to take very good care of them. And not that we can take on the whole world, but we should smile, we should be kind, uh, we should 
do nothing to add to their burden, I guess is what I would want to say. I love that, and I it's neat in which it reflects your lifetime of work being kind and careful for, for vulnerable people, whether they're children or whether they're women who are birthing or, or the people that love them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and the thing is the rewards are so great. <laughs> yes. Uh, not only for them, but for those of us who are trying to do that work. Well, thank you again for taking the time um, to talk with me. Well, very good, and thank you very much. It's nice to talk shop. Hey, everyone. So that's the end of my interview with Penny Simpkin. If you are curious about Penny and want to know more about her work, you can check out her website, pennysimpkin.com, which has links to her books and some free information, resources for birthing mothers and their families, as well as a little bit more information about Penny's history. Thanks so much for listening to Parenting Reimagined. Stay tuned for another great interview coming up next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Parenting Reimagined. If you like what you heard, visit our website, parentingreimagined.org, and sign up for our mailing list. You can also like us on Facebook. Thanks for taking the time to be part of this community of parents who's committed to learning the deeper lessons of parenting. 